0: I think we all as believers this morning can agree how much of a blessing corporate worship is to our souls. When we think about the way that the Lord blesses us and strengthens us in our private time with Him and, and how wonderful that is. And with our, our, our families when we have family worship and we read God's Word together. But uh, what a special treasure it is to gather as a local church. So I pray that we're not just going through the motions today. That we're not just here biding time until the next thing on the list for uh, this end of the weekend day. But that we really are here on the Lord's Day for corporate worship. To magnify Him and to rejoice uh, in our relationship with Him. to, To be here today filled with joy. Filled with joy before our God. If you would go with me to Exodus 21. We are at the end of Exodus 21, and we're going to go into a chunk of Exodus 22. So, 2133 to 2217 today. 2133 to 2217. As we've been going through Exodus, we are now working our way through the legal material that comes after the Ten Commandments. So, the Ten Commandments are an encapsulation of God's holy law. They, uh, they are the, the law of God in a nutshell. And then we have after that the rules or judgments in chapters 21 to 23, which show what those Ten Commandments look like in day-to-day life for real Israelites in real society. So uh, the Ten Commandments can be uh, distant. They can be uh, kind of beyond us, out there. Uh, some of them, of course, uh, all of them, I think, are, are clear and concrete in that way. But, but still, they're, they're large ideas, they're large principles, and, and, and they beg many questions about uh, day-to-day life. And so what we get in chapters 21 to 23, hanging on to the Ten Commandments, falling underneath the Ten Commandments, are all of these ways that God's law, God's will for human beings, gets worked out among His covenant people in daily life. Last week we talked about laws regarding harm or personal injury. That was the focus. Those laws dealing with injury to other human beings. Some of those involved death and some of those involved the death penalty. And so we had three points, fighting men, wounded slaves, and aggressive animals, and I won't rehash what we looked at there, but those were the the overarching buckets, the, the overarching categories that we were able to put the material there into as we thought about ways in which human beings can be harmed by another. Today, we move from this topic of harm to the topic of loss. We move from scenarios of personal injury to scenarios that deal with personal property. From people to things or animals, creatures, other than human beings. So the title for the sermon this morning is Loss Scenarios. Last week, harm scenarios. This week, loss scenarios. If you would go ahead and stand with me as we read God's word together. Exodus 21, 33 to twenty-two seventeen, 17. And you'll notice in your ESV that verse 16 and 17 are included with the next section. But I think you'll see how uh, it really belongs uh, with this section. <clears throat> so beginning in 21, 33, this is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> when a man opens a pit... Or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. When one man's ox butts another so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast also they shall share." Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox and the dead beast shall be his. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies... (coughs) Excuse me, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over over, or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and in his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution." If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe and if it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox, for a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, or for any kind of lost thing of which one says this is it, The case of both parties shall come before God. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe, and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath, and he shall not make restitution. But if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. If it is torn by beasts, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. If a man borrows anything of his neighbor and it is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If it was hired, it came for its hiring fee. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless this time in his word. Uh, This is the... A passage that may seem quite obscure and quite distant from life, but in fact it's quite practical, actually. It's very, very real to life, uh, and very real to life then, and I think that's what makes it so uh, challenging for us as we come to a passage like this, it just seems so distant from us. But I pray that the Lord this morning, we're going to pray this, that the Lord would uh, grant us eyes to see uh, what it is that He's saying to us through this passage for our lives today. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word, every uh, syllable, uh, as Jesus said, every jot and tittle. Lord, we thank you that you have given us this precious gift, and we pray now that we would be attentive, that we would take responsibility for our bodies and our minds, and that we would be attentive to your word now, God. We ask that you would use it to sanctify us, that you would Uh, Help us to see clearly what is here for us today, and God, we ask that you would apply it in very specific ways, which only you can do to our hearts and to our lives. God, we're grateful for time to gather this morning, and uh, we pray that you would save sinners, that you would build up your saints, Lord, that you would work in the hearts of all of us, Lord. We we know that all of us have sin, and God, sin that we don't see, and Satan is really good at blinding us to our sin. And helping us to be distracted. So God, we pray that you would undistract us today. That you would pull our hearts and our minds to truth. And that we would turn away from those lies. And lies would be uncovered in our lives. Father, be gracious to us, we pray. We know that you have been gracious to us in sending your Son. And you have been gracious to us in applying his atonement to us by your Spirit. And so God, we pray into that grace knowing that you are our heavenly Father, and you know what we need before we ask, and you love us. So God, we pray, knowing these things to be true, and asking that you would be uh, gracious to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we take on this large chunk of laws governing property laws, I have grouped them into three categories, just like last week. Here, here we have three Uh, different categories that are covered. So as I said last week, you could just go through these, uh, walking through them. But I think it's easier for us as we uh, try to take on this material and, and have it stick into our minds and to feel the force of it, to take all that's here and to group it under these three. And I think they are clear here, these three categories. So first, destruction. And for that, we'll look at 33 to 36 And then uh, in 22, we'll look at verses 5 to 6 and then 14 to 15. So these three little chunks. And then theft, verses 1 to 4 and 7 to 13. And then seduction is those last two verses uh, that we have at the end, verses 16 and 17. So destruction, theft, and seduction, three ways in which there is loss to another person that is dealt with here uh, in God's law. So first, let's look at destruction. And we see the theme of destruction or damage to property popping up throughout this section. It comes in these little little chunks. And it loosely involves these three categories. So let me give you three categories here for destruction or damage to property. So we have animals, fields, and borrowing. These three kind of scenarios. And by the way, I want to just mention again, uh, this book of the covenant, these laws, these individual rules or judgments are not meant to be comprehensive. They are paradigms, they're examples used by the judges of Israel with God's wisdom to adjudicate cases as they would come forward, as situations would arise. And you can imagine with over two million people, all the different variations of Uh, of cases that could emerge that would fall under the different categories and scenarios represented. So not comprehensive, but meant to be a launching pad for other applications of God's law. So animals, fields, and borrowing. So let's look first at loss regarding animals. And for that, we'll look at verses 33 to 36 at the end of chapter 21. So this is what it says. When a man opens a pit... Or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make, rest, shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. When one man's ox butts another so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price." And the dead beast also they shall share. Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox and the dead beast shall be his. Here are two scenarios, both of which having to do with the loss of someone else's animal. And to us today, when we think animals, really we we think dogs and cats. That that's really uh, I don't think cats at all. I just think dogs. But some of you (laughs) think cats, Uh, and that's it. You know, dogs and cats. Uh, But back then, there was much more of an emphasis on domesticated animals. This was part of, of people's livelihood. This was integrally related to a person's wealth and property. And if you were here back when we went through Genesis, you'll remember how much emphasis was given To the animals uh, in the stories of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The emphasis on wealth and prosperity as the Lord was working in the lives of the patriarchs and blessing them in the promised land. uh, That the emphasis there on wealth through domesticated animals. So it really is a big deal when you think about the loss of an animal. In the first case here, a pit is dug. And it could be for storage or for trapping a wild animal. There's various reasons why a pit could be dug. Uh, But here there's no indication that the pit was dug maliciously. But just practically for some purpose that was needed, the pit is dug. And if left uncovered, it could result in someone else's farm animal being killed by falling into it. So deep enough uh, to kill an animal. Maybe it's filled with water and so the animal drowns. But it is a threat if left uncovered to animals. If that occurs, the person who dug the pit has an obligation to buy the dead animal from its owner. So that's the first case. The second case gives us a person's ox or bull that kills the ox or bull of another. And this can be divided into accidental or negligence. So you see the various layers here that are involved an accidental situation of one person's ox killing another or a negligent situation if accidental then the person whose ox did the damage is to share the loss with his neighbor the living animal is sold and all is split between them so you see that uh, even though there was there was no negligence even though there was no real culpability Uh, There is the, the importance of recognizing the loss to someone else caused by what you have and then coming underneath that burden of loss with that other individual, with your neighbor and within the covenant people, with your brother and bearing up under that loss with him. So the living animal is sold and all is split between the two. However... There may be, in such cases, negligence on the part of the owner of the budding ox. Negligence in which a person should have taken action to prevent their animal from harming another. And we saw this last week as we looked at negligence that would involve an animal killing another human being and how that could result in the death penalty unless a ransom was paid. But here we have property on property harm. One animal killing another. If it is the case that negligence has been a part of this, then he must replace the dead animal with one that is alive. So he takes the dead animal for himself and he replaces it with one that is alive. He restores the situation to where it was before. So first we have the the loss of animals. Second We have loss regarding fields or what is harvested from those fields. So look at verses 5 to 6 in chapter 22. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and in his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. So here we are not given many details about circumstances and intent. That would be for the the judges to work out. But we are given the outcome. And the outcome is destruction to someone else's field or vineyard or grain due to grazing animals or fire. And in the case of fire, what's being envisioned here are uh, thorn bushes that would separate property from property. And so I I found that interesting this week, something I didn't know, that uh, that's the way in which property would be separated is they would would have these thorn bushes which would try to keep the animals separate and keep the land separate. It would be a a clear boundary marker. Well, in a case of fire, the fire would, uh, those thorn bushes would would catch fire very quickly and would cause a spread of that fire into another person's field. In both cases, some level of negligence seems to be involved. In an effort to clear his own field through grazing or fire, a man ends up damaging the field of another. So we're not given any indication here that this is malicious or intentional, but that in the course of caring for his own property, It leads to the destruction of another person's property. And in these cases, things are made right by giving the offended party the best in his own field or vineyard. Or as verse 6 says, by making full restitution. And by the way, this emphasis on the best, giving the very best, it makes sure that restitution is made, but it also acts as a deterrent. So you're going to be more careful... With your animals, you're going to be more careful with setting fire. If you know that, you're going to have to forfeit the very best of your land if you mess up the property of another person. So built into this is a deterrent against harming other people's stuff. Third, we get loss in situations of borrowing. So we have animals, we have fields, and now we have loss in situations of borrowing. So look at verses 14 to 15 for that. If a man borrows anything of his neighbor and it is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If it was hired, it came for its hiring fee. A few years ago, I can remember borrowing someone's wheelbarrow. We were doing a lot of mulch and moving stuff and we needed uh, someone's wheelbarrow. And when I was finished using it, I noticed that the tire was kind of flat. It, it was sort of sagging. Not all the way out, but it was kind of flat. And it turned out that it was like that when I got it. Uh, as I talked with the person who owned it, that that was just the way it was. And the, the mulch, and it was just really heavy, and so it made it look like it was totally flat. But I can remember These verses popping into my head as I assessed the situation. I have borrowed another person's property. And it appears that I may have caused a flat tire on another person's property. So uh, we see how practical, and you can just apply this beyond a wheelbarrow, you can apply this, this to all sorts of situations, practical situations, in which you borrow something from someone else, and we are to return it in the way that we received it. Here we have borrowed property that is damaged, and if the owner is absent... Then the borrower must make restitution. If the owner is present, then his supervision is sufficient to remove blame from from the borrower. So the person is present with it and is able to oversee the situation, is able to supervise the use of their own property, and so blame is removed. Also, If the item was hired or rented, then the fee covers possible damages. So you see the detail with which God's law is is setting precedent, is, is setting paradigms for application throughout the life of the Israelites. So now I want to take a moment and just explore a few implications for us as we think about these verses, specifically as we think about destruction to property. So first... The line between accident and negligence is sometimes hard to discern. Uh, This is not a clear cut, written in bold, permanent marker kind of line. Uh, And it's the reason why wisdom is needed. Wisdom is needed uh, as we parent our children, as we adjudicate uh, in those situations. Wisdom is needed for those who serve in uh, law enforcement and in Uh, Legal prosecution, judges, Uh, wisdom is needed across the board to discern these things. And God, it, it just reminds us that God made us as rational beings. It reminds us that we're made in God's image, that we have the ability to reason. And we should praise God for that. That's what separates us, one of the things that separates us from other creatures. We have the ability to discern the distinctions. Just as we see in Genesis 1, as God is making things and speaking things into existence, he's drawing lines, he's creating categories, he's making distinctions. We are made in the image of that creator, God. And sometimes the line between accident and negligence is difficult. But we recognize that we have a responsibility to avoid negligence. That's the big idea here is that in in every way we should do what we can to avoid negligence. And this means also taking preemptive measures. It's not just spontaneously avoiding negligence. It is being a rational, responsible, mature, made-in-God's-image person who uh, looks ahead who thinks about all the ways that that negligence could happen and tries to navigate life in such a way, taking preemptive measures to such a degree that negligence is avoided. That is the responsibility of a person made in God's image. And here, someone who has God's law written on his or her heart. Second, Loving others means caring for their stuff. Right? Uh, Property, stuff, is not irrelevant. Now we recognize that we are uh, to set our minds on things above where Christ is and not on earthly things. And we recognize that we are are not to build our lives on earthly things. We are are not to to, to focus ourselves or, or idolize these things. Nonetheless... Personal property is a divinely instituted reality. And there is stuff. We have stuff and others have stuff. And part of what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves, part of what it means to love others well is to care for their stuff. Let me say it this way. If people are important to us, then their property will be as well. In fact, it's easy to say that people are important to us in theory. One of the ways that we show that people are important to us is by caring for their stuff. Third, a third implication for us is that accidents and failures are going to happen. Right? I mean, this is just a part of life. Accidents are out of our control and failures on our part are inevitable. We can't foresee every situation in which we could be negligent. And we can think about our lives right now and look back and probably there will be certain things that come to mind, ways in which we have been negligent in our lives. Accidents and failures are going to happen. But when they do, this is the key, we should do what we can to make it right. They will happen, but we want to make it right. And let me just say as a, as a broad implication for all these things, this is what it practically looks like to walk in Christ. So if you're reading through this material, you're thinking, oh my goodness, this is, this is so strange. This is so just out there. Uh, When are we going to get, you know, to something else? Just consider this, that, that this is practically in the nitty gritty, in the dirt, dirt in the fingernails kind of living. This is what it looks like to walk in Christ. To love other people. To care about them and their things. To not be... Negligent. This is what it looks like to have God's law written on our hearts. To follow God's will. We talk about God's will. What is God's will for my life? Part of that is to take care of other people's stuff. That is part of what it means to follow God's will. So before you go way out there into the clouds, just live right here in front of your face. Right? Do God's known will. His obvious will, his revealed will, and leave all those big, huge life questions into his hands. Follow him in the minutiae. We see this emphasis on. Loving others in Galatians 6.10, So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of God. Doing good to another person involves taking care of their things. Philippians chapter 2 verse 4, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now in uh, Philippians 2, in the Greek text, there, there, there is no word for interests. It literally is the things, And, of course, it's broad. It's all the the things, the, the, the person's life, the person's stuff, the person's sphere of existence. It's everything involved. Let each of you look not only to his own things, but also to the things of others. So those are just some implications for us as we think about these passages involving the destruction of property. Secondly, we have theft. We have theft. Look at verses 1 to 4. And then we'll go ahead and read also verses 7 to 13. So verses 1 to 4. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him... There shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. And then verses 7 to 13. If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe, and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox, for a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, or for any kind of lost thing, of which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before God. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe, and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath, and he shall not make restitution. But if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. If it is torn by beasts, let him bring it as as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been Now there's a lot of material here, uh, but the big idea is stealing. That's the flashing word as we go through the first four verses there, and then 7 to 13, the big flashing word is stealing. And it is traced back to the eighth commandment. This is an outworking of the eighth commandment. And in fact, destruction of property is also an outworking of the eighth commandment. But the 8th commandment, commandment, Exodus 20, 15, says you shall not steal. And so here we have stealing. Verses 1 to 4 deals with straightforward stealing. Stealing an ox or a sheep comes with a five-fold or a four-fold restitution. Such animals are tied to a person's livelihood. And when the animals have been killed or sold off after being stolen, then this level of restitution must be paid. However, and this is interesting, if the animal is found alive with the person okay, so you have two scenarios. One, uh, there's a, a thief, he goes and he takes an ox, and he's got that ox and he kills, slaughters it and takes, makes use of it, or sells it off, but is caught. there's the fivefold and the fourfold restitution. But then you have a situation where a man steals an ox, same stealing, but then he's caught with it. He's caught in possession of it. This is dealt with in verse 4. If the animal is found alive with the person, they haven't killed it or sold it yet, then they are to pay double. And double is the standard restitution for stolen property. Now notice here that there is grace extended to a person who has recently stolen something. (coughs) So the idea is if a person has stolen an ox and killed it or sold it off, Then it's happened a little while ago. But this is a situation where there's sort of a fresh theft. They've recently stolen it. And they still have an opportunity to return it. If caught during this phase in which they still have an opportunity to return it, the restitution is less than if the person has already profited from the stolen Good. So you can see there, there these, these levels of punishment involved, fivefold and fourfold versus just giving back double. And then we see in Leviticus chapter 6 verses 4 to 5 that there's the case of the thief who steals something and then his conscience just eats him up. And so he goes back and he says, sorry, I stole this. And he returns it. So this is what Leviticus chapter 6 verses 4 to 5 says. If he has sinned and has realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he found or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full And shall add a fifth to it and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. And so here we have three levels or three layers. The person who steals something and profits from it, a fivefold or a fourfold restitution. Then you have the person who steals something and still is in possession of it. They're still in the, the phase of potentially being able to turn around from their evil deed, but they are caught they are to restore double. And then you have a third category of person who has stolen something and they decide that they are going to return that thing or that animal to the person. In such cases, they are only to add a fifth. Now, why is this so important, these endless details? Why is this so important? Well, it shows us that God gives us opportunities to turn away from our sin now think about that God is this gracious loving father who in the context of his people uh, sinning God gives space he gives opportunity for us to turn back from that path to stop going down that path and to turn back you know i We've told our kids before, hey, you are going down this kind of path. I'm going to give you an opportunity to self-correct. I'm going to give you an opportunity to turn back, to turn around and stop going down that path. Or I'm going to have to help move you back onto the other path. Path, And that is part of our responsibility as parents is to help our children to see the path that they are on and to call them back from that path to the right one. What's done is done. This also tells us. And restitution will be needed. So the person who steals and then feels bad about it and returns it still has to make restitution. But it is considerably lower than if he had not come forward and given back the property. What's done is done. And restitution will be needed. But here's what God's word is saying to us. Go no further. And I think that just needs to be said in a blanket way to us this morning, as we think about where we are in our lives. I think this is what the Lord is saying to each of us, that there are ways this morning in which, as we're gathered here this morning, and I I can't read anyone's mind. I don't know what's in our lives, and our hearts, but maybe the Lord is saying to you this morning through his word, you are down a road. It is a bad road. It is a dark road. It is a road leading to destruction. The damage has been done and restitution will be needed. But go no further. Turn around. Turn around. And this is the grace of God. That he gives us opportunity to turn around. So will you take that opportunity today? One important aspect of verses 1 to 4 is this break-in scenario. You have a theft that involves a a home break-in or a digging-in. Homes built with mud bricks would be dug into, not broken into or kicked into or smashed into. They'd be dug into. So you have this break-in scenario. If the thief is killed at night while breaking in, there is no blood guilt for him. But if during the day there is blood guilt, now, that's interesting. That means that if the thief is breaking in at night and the person who owns the home sees the thief coming in and strikes the thief so that he dies, that the, the homeowner is relieved of any responsibility or culpability or guilt. But if it happens during the daytime, it's different. This is a protection even for thieves. That's amazing. This is God graciously providing even for thieves. And it's just another pointer of the way in which God has provided for us, though thieves and murderers, He has given us His own Son. We see here God's grace even to thieves. This passage, these verses, affirm self-defense... If one is unable to determine the threat to life and family, it affirms, so if you have been wondering about that, I think this is a a key passage in the Bible affirming that it it is just and right to protect yourself and your family and your home. If someone is breaking into your home at night and that involves a deadly force because you don't know if that person has a knife or a gun or what their intentions might be. I think this affirms that we have the right to defend our families. But it also limits deadly force in the case of theft. And it tells us this. Human life is more important than human property. You you can't kill someone because they're taking your TV. Right? TV way down here. Human being? even a thief, way up here. Do you see what's going on there in God's law? The justice of it, the protection for the homeowner whose life may be in jeopardy, but also the gracious protection even for a thief and the recognition that human life is far more important than human stuff. This is a stark contrast with the ancient world in general, with the ancient Near East, where the death penalty for theft uh, was given out in various ancient law codes, where if a, a thief could be put to death, it was a way of saying that there really is no difference between property and people. But as Bible readers, as people made in God's image, as people who know God's revealed will, who have his law, we recognize that there's an intrinsic distinction and prioritization between people and property. You also have this awful draconian uh, sort of, of law in the ancient Near East where a thief could, be, uh, could have to pay restitution up to 30-fold 30-fold, and could be put to death. In that sense, we see the mercy and the grace embedded in God's law. Here, we do see that a person can be sold into slavery, but the restitution, the debt, is only five-fold, which is conceivable, impossible, as opposed to 30-fold, which would undoubtedly result in lifelong slavery. So that's verses 1 to 4. When we come to verses 7 to 13, the issue is safekeeping. Uh, Keeping something for someone else. Maybe you've done this before. Someone has gone out of town and they've given you their car or they've given you their pet. They've given you something that you have kept and taken care of. When a person entrusts something to another. And we all recognize that to do that comes with a certain amount of risk that the item could be damaged or stolen. We are taking a risk when we take our things and we give them to someone else to take care of. But these verses still fall under the topic of stealing. We are still very much in the theme of stealing as we come to verses 7 to 13. And so the focus here is when there is suspicion that the one looking after the property has stolen it. So that's the focus. The focus here is, is not so much the, someone uh, the losing, someone coming and stealing something from the, the holder, but the holder himself or herself stealing it from the owner. In such cases, they are to be brought before the Lord. And this would involve judges and priests and oaths. This would involve coming officially before the Lord as you come before the, the religious system of ancient Israel. They would be brought before the Lord. And this presupposes two things as we read this, about them coming before the Lord and giving an oath in God's presence and and, and the owner of the property accepting that oath and so forth. It presupposes two things, the power of God and the fear of God. It presupposes that the people fear God, that they do not want to offend God. And by the way, it's in the light of what they've just seen. We might read this and think, Anyone just go right on up there and say it? Make an oath? Yeah, uh, say something like, "I I swear." We hear this all the time over trivially. I swear to God. People say that sort of thing all the time, and and it just is, it means nothing. But we, we have to keep in mind that this involves initially people who have seen or whose parents have seen as we come later to the writing of this down as they're about to enter Canaan, have seen God's glory displayed. They've seen God's majesty. They have seen his power. And so there is a a fear of God embedded in this. Are you going to walk up before Sinai? Are you going to walk, as it were, are you going to walk up before God glowing in his glorious presence? Before the Ark of the Covenant, before his priests, before the judges, and are you going to blatantly say, I did not take the thing? So it presupposes fear of the Lord, but also the power of God to work to rectify the situation. To blatantly lie to God's face in the matter is to invite his punishment. It is to bring down curse rather than blessing. And we actually later, when Solomon is dedicating the temple in Jerusalem, we get reference to this sort of thing in 1 Kings 8, verses 31 to 32. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then here in heaven... And act and judge your servants, condemning the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. So Solomon prays into God's power. He prays into God's presence, recognizing that for a person to come before God at the temple, this is years later, what we've moved from pre-tabernacle through tabernacle to temple, that to come before God in this context and to lie about stealing something is to invite God's judgment. If it turns out that the neighbor who was keeping the item has stolen it, then restitution must be paid. So once again, let's take a step back from these stealing passages. And I just want to draw out a few implications for us as we try to process this for ourselves today. So first, stealing is a mark of the old unconverted life. Is a mark of the old unconverted life. And we see this in the logic of Ephesians chapter 4. Remember, Ephesians is divided into two sections. The first three dealing with the theology of our identity in Christ and what God has done for us in and through Christ. And then the last three chapters, chapters 4 to 6, deal with the practical outworking of that, where you get all of these imperatives. And the logic of Ephesians 4 shows us that stealing is a mark of the old unconverted life. So verse 17 says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk, as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. And then you fast forward a little bit to verse 22. Put off your old self. And then verse 24. Put on the new self. And then all of that funnels down into what we read in chapter 4, verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. That's what it looks like to be a Christian. What it looks like to be an unbeliever is to steal, it's to destroy destructiveness and theft and and all kinds of disregard for other people and their stuff is a mark of an unbeliever. And of course it shows up in all kinds of civilized ways, but it's embedded in the heart of every unbeliever. By contrast, laboring, Doing work with our own hands so that we may have something to share with someone in need is what it looks like to be a Christian believer. It's what it looks like to be someone who now is in Christ Jesus, to use the language so frequent in Ephesians. A second implication, which we've already talked about but I want to reiterate, is that self-defense is affirmed, but human life must always be Respected. You hear these stories, macho ish kind of stories of people killing someone who's broken in or stolen something and they're running away. It's evil. It's evil. It's a disregard, it's a disrespect for human life. Human life even of those who have committed crimes, even of those who are our enemies, even of those who have wronged us and offended us, is valuable in God's sight. It's the image of God in man. The image of God even embedded in the mugshot of the criminal. Third, passages like this remind us Of the uncertainty of riches. Now consider this. This is so important for us in our materialistic, very wealthy society when compared to the rest of the world. We all live like kings and queens. Passages like this remind us that these riches, these things that we've cushioned our lives with, are uncertain. Matthew chapter 6 verses 19 to 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Everything we have in this life has to be held with loose hands. It can be destroyed. It can be taken away. Someone can steal your identity and wreck your credit and steal all your money. Someone could harm you and make it to where you can't work. And you find yourself with very little. All the things we have in this life that we cling to, that we hope in, that we pretend as though they're made of concrete are really just made of sand. Some of them... Many of them made really of air. And yet we treat them as though they are our carefully constructed castle and fortress with concrete walls where nothing can take us down. This is not the case. These things are uncertain. And then 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 to 19 says this explicitly, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Hope is not in the number in the account, but it's on the Lord, knowing he's going to take care of us. He's going to work in our lives, and he's going to provide for us in the way he sees fit for our good and his glory according to his will and our ultimate eternal good. goes on to say they are to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. It reminds me of Jesus when he says the one who saves his life will lose it. This is, this is not truly life in the sense that, uh, that we think that what really matters is our experience, our comfort, our happiness, our stuff. He who clings to that and holds that dear and packs that away loses his life eternally. But he who loses his life for my sake shall find it. These are the words of Jesus to a rich society. Often neglected. Often forgotten. Jesus doesn't just tell us to read our Bibles and go to church. He tells us to respond in the right way to all of our Precious stuff. And to hope in him and not our riches. Thirdly, we have this lost scenario of seduction. So destruction, theft, and seduction. Look at verses 16 to 17 as we finish up. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. Now, it would be easy to get tripped up at this point. (laughs) Like, what? How is this related to what we just read? To get tripped up and to think that the text is saying that a virgin daughter is mere property to her father. So you could just sort of kind of play this out. We know we're talking about property. It's clear. We were talking about you know, personal injury before, and bodily injury, and now we're talking about personal property, and now all of a sudden we get this reference. This is one of the reasons why I think a lot of people want to put it in the next section. Let's push it out there to the next section. But it really belongs here with this section. It is a loss scenario. It is not the case that she is being treated like mere property. Instead, the issue is the bride price. Something that's very distant from our way of thinking, but in the ancient world was very much a part of life and still today functions in societies. When a woman left home to marry, her help and services within within the household were lost. And that just reminds us of how important people within a household should be to the functioning and maintenance of that household. May it not be that our children just grow up being entertained. Uh, May it be that they actually contribute to the functioning of our homes. And that's the way that it was there. It's presupposed here. When she left home, her help and her services around the house within the household were lost. And the bride price to the father was meant to compensate for the loss of a member of the family functioning within the household. And if a man comes along, I have two daughters, so I kind of could grimace at this. Man comes along and seduces a woman and steals away her virginity, that would affect her ability to be properly betrothed to another. And it would undoubtedly affect the bride price to the father, to the family. The livelihood and the sustenance of the family is in jeopardy. So in this sense, the seducer is stealing the bride price from the father by joining himself to the daughter without marrying her. That's what's going on. And in such cases, the man is to marry the woman and pay the bride price. But if her father, which I'm sure happened a lot, will not give her in marriage to this guy, then the man must still pay the bride price. He must make restitution for any loss that would accrue. Now, let me just say, regarding implications for this passage, it affirms virginity until marriage. It affirms that. It holds that up as God's way. It presupposes and assumes that that is the natural way, is that we would remain virgins until married. This is not outdated morality. This is embedded in God's design for humanity. And it is still what we teach our children, that sex exists within the confines of marriage. This is where God intended it. And this is where God gave this gracious gift to husband and wife. And it just reminds us that sex is a good gift from God. It is a good gift from the Creator. But listen to this. It is a sign of a covenant. And we all recognize what that is as we think about circumcision or, uh, as I understand it, the Sabbath day. Or also as we think about the rainbow As we understand Noah and the flood, a sign of the covenant. Well, the same is true when a marriage is consummated. It is a sign of the covenant union between a man and his wife. They have become one flesh in reality. They've become one flesh physically. And it's a sign and symbol of the union of these two individuals in marriage. To do that without marriage is one big fat lie. It's one big perversion of God's design for sex, and God's design for men and women, and for husband and wife. So as we come to the end of our passage for today, as we come to the end of these three, destruction, theft, and seduction, I hope that you just see the justice of God's law and the care with which it is given and the way in which, in some respects, it even surprises us in its graciousness, but also the way in which it takes seriously sin. And as we always consider when we come to God's law, we recognize all the ways we've broken it. Uh, We don't leave here this morning and say, I'm going to make sure that I keep all these things perfectly. We leave here this morning crying out to Christ, praising Him for dying for our sins, for our law-breaking, and for giving us His Spirit so that His law, this very law, would be written on our hearts so love of God and love of neighbor would guide everything we are and do. So we praise God this morning that He has forgiven us of our law-breaking, Jesus has paid the penalty for that, and through him, we have a love of neighbor in our hearts with which we go forward this morning, applying his word, walking in his spirit. Let's pray.